Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Welcome to Our Life in Christ, a radio teaching ministry of the Orthodox Christian Church. Our program brings you the Christian faith as taught by the early fathers of the church and which has been preserved and practiced within the spiritual life of the Orthodox Christian churches around the world. The Orthodox Christian Church is evangelical but not Protestant. It is Orthodox but not Jewish. It is not non-denominational. It is pre-denominational. It is believed, preserved, defended, taught, and died for the faith of the apostles for 2,000 years. It is our prayer that you will be encouraged and challenged as we discuss the Orthodox Christian Church's ancient teachings about our life in Christ. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and abide with us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. And welcome to Our Life in Christ and another great Sunday afternoon here in the Valley of the Sun. My name is Bill Gould and I am your host today. And I say it is a, a great Sunday afternoon on the Our Life in Christ radio program because today we will spend an hour talking with Father Peter Gilquist, who is an archpriest in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America. Well, that's a mouthful, huh? Mm-hmm. And chairman of the Arch- Archdiocese Department of Missions and Evangelism. He is the author of numerous books, including Love is Now, The Physical Side of Being Spiritual, and uh, Becoming Orthodox, which is a great book that I've read and was instrumental in bringing me to the Orthodox faith. He is also project director of the Orthodox Study Bible, which quite a number of you in our audience have requested copies of. Welcome to the program, Father. Yeah, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. I know Steve would love to have been here with us, too, but... He's visiting his son this weekend in Boston, and we'll be back next Sunday. So we're glad to have you here with us today. Ironically, I saw him earlier this week. <laughs> yeah. Because I came from Boston to Phoenix. Yeah, well, you were uh, attending out a ladies' retreat out of Assumption this weekend. That's right. Uh-huh. You have an amazing and, I dare say, unprecedented, I think, story to tell about a quest that you and several of your evangelical and academic colleagues embarked on, uh, what was it, over about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm a quest to discover and then model yourselves on the teachings and practices of the first century Christian church. So why don't we begin by asking you to set the table for our audience and sketch out what got you started on that journey? Well, probably the place to start in college. I went to the University of Minnesota, which we lovingly call the Harvard of the North. And uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, joined a fraternity. I was an SAE there, Sigma Alpha Epsilon, and just decided college should be fun. So I studied minimally and partied and went to football weekends and all the things college guys do. And uh, you know you're in trouble when parties start to get boring. And so yeah. by my, my junior year, life was just empty. And, you know, outwardly I had everything I wanted. I'd be making passing grades and had my first car and was going with the girl that I loved and I've married and you know, so everything looked to be in place but inside there was just that giant emptiness and as so many I'm sure the listeners today would know that apart from Christ life is nowhere so um, in the spring of my junior year in large part through a Bible study held in the fraternity house I committed my life to Christ and of course things began to change 
So um, over the, that summer, I went to a couple of Christian conferences that were really helpful, and then came back to school in the fall for my senior year and discovered that uh, many of the guys that I'd counted as good friends wanted to talk hmm. because they saw that there were some changes. And ironically, I just had lunch with that bunch of guys two weeks ago. Oh, is that office. right? Yeah. Now, those were just, you know, that was a phenomenal year. And, and guys would come by, and they'd have questions, or they'd ask, can we pray together? And so by Christmas in my senior year, I just, all I wanted to do was serve the Lord, you know, full-time the rest of my life. And Campus Crusade was a big thing back then. And What year was this exactly? Well, I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> uh, it was 1959. Oh, wow. Okay. So, Back in yeah, the you're book, dating yourself. Back right? in the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, anyway, having grown up Lutheran, I thought, well, you know, probably the thing I need to do is the Lutheran ministry. So there was a there's a Lutheran seminary in St. Paul called, oddly enough, Luther Seminary. And so there was a man on the faculty there, Dr. George Oss, who I had never met, but his reputation around town was that he was a, an in-house resident saint over there. People said he was... Very pious man, loved Christ. So I phoned him and asked if I could go see him. Right. And we sat in his office, and I explained to him how I'd grown up in the church and just zoned out and through the Bible study come back to Christ and really meant business, wanted to devote my life. And I got tears in his eyes, and he said, I pray for young guys like you to come here, but don't come. And I said, why not? He said, you're too new. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well... He used a phrase I'd never heard. He said, Protestant liberalism has taken this place over. And if you come, they'll talk you out of the virgin birth. They'll talk you out of the inspiration of the scripture. They'll talk you out of the resurrection. He said, go somewhere where they believe the Bible. Yeah. So seminary, in this case, really was cemetery. Well, it it? was cemetery. And and what it did, driving home, you know, that afternoon, I felt like the the man without a country because uh, this is all I'd ever known. And now I'm having... A guy say, well, you know, the glory has departed, so to speak. So uh, I checked with some of my evangelical friends on the campus, and they said, well, the place to go is Dallas Seminary. Oh, wow. And, uh, of course, you know, Dallas has produced Chuck Swindoll and Hal Lindsey and so many others guys. So I applied and got accepted, and, and so Marilyn and I were married, and we drove in the fall of 1960 down to Dallas. Mm-hmm. And it was hilarious because I really was new. I mean, I knew John 3:16 and you know the Lord's Prayer, and that was about it. So uh, Dallas was a very positive experience for me, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of emphasis on Bible teaching, which is exactly what I wanted. Each semester, they'll cancel classes and do a one or two week special series on a book of the Bible. And in the fall, they did the Book of Acts, and that's where I really started to get tuned into the whole vision of the church. And I remember Acts chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and prayers. prayers right. And thought, wow, that's the kind of church I want. You know, the right doctrine, a solid historic faith. And the word fellowship in the Greek is kinonia, community. In other words, Christianity isn't just Jesus and me, but it's, it's the community of the redeemed, the church. And then the breaking of bread was a code phrase throughout Acts for communion, the body and blood of Christ. And then at interesting prayers, the, the word the in the Greek, it, it's not translated, it's prayers in the old King James. But if you translated it literally, it's the prayers. And the prayers suggest that there are prayers you pray that have been prayed before. Right. And, of course, it come, comes to mind the book of Psalms, that 
Psalms were the prayer book of the church. Yes, the, Jew, the Jews had a lot of prayers. Absolutely. <laughs> so this was a vision, you know, and I thought, this is what I'd love in a church. And having been brought up, you know, Lutheran and then getting involved in the evangelical movement, I remember a fraternity brother said of the evangelical movement, who was also Lutheran, he said, well, isn't that bargain basement Christianity? And I, I flinched, but in my heart, I knew that he, he was on to something. Right. Because it was possible to be a mile wide and an inch deep. And a lot of razzmatazz, and yet the whole idea of the holiness of God somehow, you know, Jesus was your cosmic buddy, and uh, right. that was troublesome. So uh, the year at Dallas, in fact, I'll say one other thing out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch, and it's where they sent out to Paul and Barnabas. And I thought, you know, as we got through Acts, of all the churches that I could join that I read about in the book of Acts, which one would I join? And it was Antioch. Why? Because I was into missions. I was into evangelism. Right. This was the evangelism church of the New Testament. And then I thought, wait a minute, don't twist your nuts. You know, everybody knows those churches don't exist anymore. I actually had that thought process. Did your professors at Dallas uh, Seminary uh, teach on the, the church fathers, or was there any kind of concentration on that sort of no, thing? No, Dallas, and it's gotten stronger, but Dallas at that time was basically a high-class Bible college. Uh-huh. And I mean, and I would say high class advisedly. I mean, we had some great Greek scholars there, but everything was Bible. And there was a church history course, and uh, Dr. George Dollar taught it. Dr. George Dollar had come to us from Bob Jones University. Fast forwarding later, when I began to study the early church, I thought, well, what did I learn in church history? <laughs> and so I got, I still had my notebook, and have, having been a journalism major undergrad, I took, you know, almost verbatim notes. I got the notebook out, big old thick one-and-a-half-inch spiral. The first half of it was the church in the book of Acts from Acts 2, Pentecost to Revelation 22. Right. The second half of the book was 1517, Luther nailing the grievances to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, to present. Yeah, big gap. <laughs> there were, I thought, okay, what's between there? For the years 100 to 1500, there were three pages because those years simply didn't count. And, of course, as a Protestant, if you study those years, Bill, you will not remain a Protestant. But we, we literally hopscotched or pole vaulted from, from 100 to 1500. Right. Because our a priori was those were the garbage years of church history. Anyway, after, after that year at seminary, I was asked to begin Campus Crusade in Chicago. I went and talked to the dean and asked for his blessing to transfer to Wheaton, which was Billy Graham's alma mater. Right. And he said, I'd never, he said, no one's ever asked my blessing to do anything, and you've got it. So <laughs> anyway, the next year, took my second year at Wheaton, and we started Campus Crusade at Northwestern, and then University of Chicago, and then University of Illinois, and gradually I became the Big Ten Regional Director for Campus Crusade. And those were great years. Back in those days, much of our time was spent speaking in fraternity houses, sororities, we spoke to the football team at Purdue one year. I spoke to the basketball team at Northwestern. And we tried to go to places no one else was going. Right. And, you know, the average campus minister, even to this day, you hang out a shingle and expect the students to come to you. And our feeling was, you know, the first word of the Great Commission is go, not come. And so we would try to go to where the students were, which was unique. I don't think Campus Crusade does that much anymore. Mm -hmm. But we did it, and we loved it. And I, one time a guy said to me, there's one campus you guys will never crack. And I said, well, which one? I knew the minute he said it, I'd go there. And he said, Notre Dame. 
<laughs> so we we finished lunch. Of course, I lived in Evanston. South Bend is a sure. two-hour drive. Sure. So I went home, phoned the chaplain's office. I just assumed they had a chaplain. Didn't know his name. So the secretary, you know, said chaplain's office, and I said, is, is Father in? She said, no, but what can I do for you? I said, I'd like to see him. She said, can you be here at 9 in the morning? I said, I'll be there. So I cleared my schedule, drove down to South Bend, checked in a hotel, and I was in his office at 9. And I just said, I, you know, I'm part of a national student Christian group that is essentially Protestant in nature, but our goal is to call kids to a deeper commitment to Christ. And I said, we'd like to come to Notre Dame. And I said, I, I can promise you we're not here to make Protestants out of your guys. We're here to call them to a commitment to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. He said, you come. So uh, we did the thing we were told we couldn't do. 2,000 kids in the basketball arena two nights in a row. And John Braun was our national speaker back in those days. Wow. And he just did a fabulous job. And we had a vocal group called the New Folk, and they sang. And, you know, we cracked Notre Dame and just had a wonderful time doing it. So, by so this the, is all in about the mid-60s. This is all mid-60s. And so as the 60s wore on, we realized that though we were getting the numbers and a lot of kids were indicating a decision to follow Christ, we really weren't affecting a change in the culture. You know, the early Christians went out and turned the world upside down. It didn't happen overnight, right. but they did affect the culture. And uh, our culture just kept, kept getting less and less Christian in America. And, of course, the whole 60s phenomenon broke out in about 1966. So we, we went back to the scriptures, a group of us that were leaders in crusade, and we just said, okay, why is it that we're not affecting a change out there? And why is it that so many of the kids that accept Christ, you know, six months later, you can't find them? Right. Huge rate of attrition, which, you know, we hesitated to admit is in Campus Crusade, but everybody knew it. And as we studied the scriptures, the summer of 67, it was as though the Holy Spirit said to us, the name of the game is church. You guys need to be church. The one thing Jesus started was the church. And, of course, we prided ourselves in not being a church. So uh, Right, yes, it's a parachurch organization. Yeah, I mean, we were trying to reach the people that didn't want church. And uh, I, I still have no trouble with that. But the way you do it is as the church because there's nothing else. It's the only game in town. It's the only thing the Lord ever established on the earth. Were you yourself attending a church yourself? Yeah, we, we went to an independent Bible church at that time, uh -huh. and we loved the people, loved the pastor. But, you know, our base was not the church. Our base was Campus Crusade. Right. We went to church to, you know, meet our supporters and, you know, hear a good sermon and so on. That was your calling card. Very little worship. So anyway, by 1968, we were pretty well sure that we wanted to devote the rest of our lives to being church. And, of course, for a Protestant, that's a huge thing. We're told today by Protestant figures there are 30,000 denominations out there. The count when I was going through all of this was 2,300. So a group of probably 200 of us that were the key guys in crusade in the 60s left. And most of us took secular jobs. I was hired as the development officer at the University of Memphis. And we purposely bought an old home in the downtown, right on the edge of downtown section, these were the old nice homes 50 years ago that had kind of slid. But we, we loved the big living room, big dining room, because we wanted to pack it out with kids. And we did. And we were experimenting with house church. Part of our, our motivation was, well, you know, in the book of Acts, 
the church began in homes or on the porch of the synagogue mm-hmm. or the temple. And we said maybe the problem with the church is it's too institutionalized. So let's get back to basics. And that was basically our motive. We began a church in our home, which today is St. John's Orthodox Church in Memphis. But none of that was on the radar screen at that point. And uh, the format was usually about a half hour of singing and a time of sharing where people would talk about what God had done for them that week and that sort of thing. And it was it was wonderful. And then I'd usually teach for about 45 minutes out of the Scripture and give a call to commit your life to Christ. And then we'd serve communion. And uh, we also, rather than just having people pray and ask Christ to come and live in their lives, we baptized them. And uh, we felt very radical doing that. But, of course, that's the whole pattern of the book. In, of in, the, in the swimming pool, right? Yeah, swimming pool. Or, I, I went through the ice in a city park when uh, it was January. I said, guys, why don't we wait till spring and we'll baptize you? They said, no, no. You know, they baptized the Philippian jailer on the spot that night, and I couldn't argue. But, uh, boy, that was a cold experience. Well, anyway, 60s ended, 70s came, and a group of us had to be in Dallas, the old crusade guys, for a conference, and we said, let's call everybody together and just see how we're doing. So uh, 70 guys showed up, and we, all of them into the, now the house church thing, most all of them former Campus Crusade staff. We went around the room, and guess how many different kinds of New Testament churches yeah. we had there? One, one apiece. Right? Yeah, one apiece. Two of them were really off the wall. I mean, two of them were just flat heretical. But uh, the rest of them usually just emphasized something they saw in the Scripture. Like ours was pretty strong in Bible teaching, and others were stronger in the whole sense of community. And there were some that were involved in outreach to the poor. Some were had become sort of sacramental in style. None of those in and of themselves were wrong. It's just that no two looked alike. And we right. said, we're just reproducing what's already out there in Christendom, just more of the same, more no walls, no standards. Yeah, so there wasn't any real organization. There was not none. In fact, we tried not to because we knew the world didn't need another denomination. Yeah. So uh, Jack Sparks, who was our one Ph.D., said, you know what our problem is? He said, as evangelicals, we know our way up to A.D. 95 really well. We know the scriptures pretty well. And as Protestants, we know our way back to 1517 pretty well. But he said, our problem is we're trying to be New Testament church and we've never traced the New Testament church through its early centuries. In other words, if that is the true church, and everyone believes it is, everybody does that's a Christian. You can be Assembly of God or Catholic or Presbyterian, but if you're serious, you know that the church in the New Testament is the true church. So he said, let's, let's find out what that church was up to, say, in 150, 200, 250, 300. And, you know, as Protestants, we believe it went wrong somewhere, but let's see, let's see what they did right. So we were excited about this. Most of us were seminary grads, but we'd never done this sort of work. So we divvied up. Sparks took worship. John Braun took church history. Dick Ballou took doctrine. Gordon Walker took Bible. And we just said, we'll go century by century. And what we, all we were trying to do is to be more effective in our life in the church. So you weren't going to write a book or anything? No, man, that was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh-huh. So anyway, we, we met every Four, let's see here, every four months, every three months, we all had jobs that were flexible enough so that we could take time off. And so we'd take a week at a time and teach each other what we were learning, go back, study more, teach each other. I'll just tell you about the first session. It was three months later. We were off the coast of Seattle on one of those little islands. 
Somebody had a cabin up there. And this is still in the 60s. This is, no, this would be now 74. Oh, so this other period took about five years. Yeah, in other words, you know, the years at Memphis. And Anyway, we got together, and the next day, we flew in and spent the night. Next day, Sparks says, I got bad news for you guys. <laughs> we said, well, what's that? He said, worship was liturgical and sacramental from the start. And I said to him, my friend, you have studied the wrong stuff. And because we didn't want that. And being a Christian isn't always getting what you want, Bill. And we, we learned that in the process. I've said I've eaten so much crow, I got feathers hanging out between my teeth. <laughs> but he, he said, let me tell you what I found. He said, first of all, we know Israel did not wing it in worship. I mean, even the measurement for the tabernacle is in the Bible. That's right. How the, the sacrifices work is in the Bible. The furniture in there is in the Bible. There's a calendar in Israel. One of our holidays is Pentecost. That's a Jewish holiday. So he said it would just be natural for the Jews to, to put Christ at the center of the worship they were used to. And he said that is what has happened. And he said one of the greatest sources is A.D. 150, uh, Justin Martyr, mm -hmm. who becomes a Christian, is born probably late in the first century, and writes in about 150, it's a book to the emperor explaining how the Christians lived. And the book, if anybody wants to get it, it's still in existence, in the volume The Apostolic Fathers, and it's called The Apology of Justin Martyr. And there's a section in there where he talks about how the Christians worshipped. And the whole order of service is in there. There's a greeting, there's the singing of hymns interspersed with the reading of scriptures. And the scriptures, of course, in those days are the Psalms, the Law and the Prophets, now get this, and the Apostles' Memoirs. It's so early, they don't even call it the New Testament yet. Right. And it's the Epistle and the Gospel. And then comes the homily, the sermon. And he goes all the way through, right up until the Eucharist at the end, and then a benediction. And we said, wow. And Dom Gregory Dix, the great scholar, an Anglican scholar who yeah, wrote... Shape, shape of the Liturgy. Yeah, yeah, about a century ago, calls this the shape of the liturgy. And a man named uh, Hippolytus, or Hippolytus either way, wrote 40 years later, gives the same exact shape as Justin gives, except he says, and this is the way the Christians worship everywhere. And we said, man, they didn't teach us that at Dallas, and they didn't teach us that at Wheaton. Then Sparks brought up one other document, which they did teach us at Dallas, called the Didache. And we dated it at 120. Now it's dated, even by liberal scholars, at 65 or 70 A.D. Yeah. And the center of worship in the Didache, there's not the uh, detail that St. Justin gives, but the very center act of worship in the Didache is the Eucharist, 70 A.D. You know, half the New Testament isn't even written by them. The Didache, by the way, means the teaching of the Twelve. And the, the tradition is these are the things the apostles taught the people. And that book is still in existence, also in the Apostolic Fathers book. Well, anyway, we, that just blew us away. That, yeah, I had somehow thought that liturgy was what happened after the initial fire of the Holy Spirit died down in the church. Right. I, I just kind of thought it was all spontaneous. Yeah. After the conversion of Constantine, the Holy, the right, Holy Spirit yeah, takes, a, takes a hike. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It gets laryngitis. And so... Here, here it was right from day one. In fact, in Acts 13, which I mentioned a minute ago, you've got the passage. Well, in the Roman Catholic version, it's hilarious. It says, as they were in the liturgy of the Lord and fasting. This is Acts 13, too. I remember reading that one night and thought, oh, those Catholics will do anything to twist things up and get their point of view in there. 
So I grabbed my Greek New Testament. The word is liturgion. You don't even need to know Greek. It's yes. liturgy. Yes. And, and the Protestant Bible translates it as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, which is acceptable if you realize the word ministered means liturgy. But today, ministered means you call on somebody at the hospital. I went and ministered to him. So, you know, the translator, the modern Protestant translator, does not want liturgy in A.D. 49 in St. Paul's home church of Antioch in Syria. You got liturgy in the Bible. So we said, okay, well, we'll need to make some changes. Then a John Braun's report came back. That's church history. And he said, I don't even know what to say with what I found. But he said, there's an early bishop in the city of, also in the city of Antioch named Ignatius. And he wrote seven letters before his martyrdom in 107 to his seven neighboring bishops. All those letters are still in existence. And he had studied those letters. And he said, the amazing thing is, I was taught, he went to Fuller. He said, I was taught at Fuller Seminary that bishops were a late innovation of the church, and you didn't have them until well into the second century. And he said, here's a man that was consecrated, St. Paul's home church, 67 A.D., served there 40 years, and he's not even the first one. He's number three Mm. in Antioch. Right. And he said, the fact is, in the last third of the first century, you've got bishops everywhere that the church is present. And, of course, we didn't want to find that because our vision of the church was, uh, you know, congregational. One man, one vote. Kind of Jeffersonian democracy superimposed on, on the New Testament church. Yeah, it sort of makes you wonder how you deal with the word episcopos. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and when, you know, Judas tubes out, they meet together in Acts 1. What does St. Peter say? Let his episcopate, let his bishopric, another yeah. take. The old t- translation was bishopric. Again today, now this is hilarious. The New King James, which I happen to like, translates it office. The NIV translates it role. Well, role is something you eat for breakfast. <laughs> the Greek word is episcopate. Yes. You know, episcopane. Yes. Excuse me for getting excited. But it, it really bugs me when, so to speak, Bible believers mess with the Bible. Right. Let's take it at face value. Anyway, we said, okay. I mean, the church is the bishop surrounded by his presbyters, his deacons, and his people. That was the vision of the ancient church through the eyes of St. Ignatius. So we said, okay, that's what we'll do. The upshot of it is, is we did something. We didn't even know the word canonical or uncanonical. But when we realized the church had always been governed by her bishops, we appointed some of ourselves bishops. And frankly, I don't think I'd be here today if we didn't. But it's not what you do. You go find right. a canonical bishop and and commit yourself. But you, but you guys didn't know quite where to look for that. We had, we had no idea who was out there. Well, I'll tell you what. When we come back from our break, you can explain where you found a canonical bishop, how you guys finally uh, arrived there. We're going to take a little break. My name is Bill Gould. I'm your host today on Our Life in Christ. We'll be back in just a minute with Father Peter Gilquist.
And welcome back to Our Life in Christ. My name is Bill Gould. I'm your host today. Uh, we have in the studio with us Father Peter Gilquist, who is a Director of Missions and Evangelism for the Antiochian Archdiocese of North America. We're having a great time talking about Father Peter's journey to the Orthodox Church. Father Peter, we were talking about the fact that uh, you were on the verge of searching for a canonical bishop, really that you had actually created your own bishops, I guess, in this, in this movement that you were starting uh, called the Evangelical Orthodox Church. So tell us a little bit more. Start, let's start again. Tell us a little bit more about what happened there. Well, when we discovered that the church was always ruled by her bishops together with the clergy and the people, we knew that we had to replicate what we saw. Right. This was the way the New Testament church was governed. And let me hasten to add, the word bishop was a bone in my throat because my forebears had had, uh, blew, had blown off the Bishop of Rome, and there really were some excesses, 16th century Roman Catholic Church. And I'd sometimes wake up at 3 in the morning tearing my hair out by the fistfuls trying to figure out if I lived back then in Wittenberg, which side would I have been on, knowing what I know now. And it's a, it's a tough call. And I thank God that's not the only choice we have in church history. Right, right. You know, so the idea of bishops, of overseers, threw us for a loop. The apostles were the first bishops, which is why you have that passage, let his bishopric another take, referencing Judas. And, of course, as time went on, they consecrated other bishops. You know, St. Paul sends Titus to Crete to set the work in order. If you read the extra-biblical records of bishops of Crete, Titus is the first bishop. He was sent there as bishop. Right. When St. Paul himself was converted in Acts chapter 9, the Lord sends him into Damascus to meet Ananias. Okay, you get the church records of the church there in Damascus. Ananias is the first bishop. And uh, just and parenthetically, you know, many of the people that you meet in the New Testament go on to be bishops of the early church. Uh, the little guy, Zacchaeus, right. bishop of Caesarea, beautiful coastal city in the Mediterranean. Uh, Onesimus and Philemon, both were early bishops. And Onesimus followed John as the bishop of Ephesus. So there's a great continuity between what you read in the New Testament and what you read in the documents of those that immediately follow or are contemporaries with the apostles. So anyway, we did bishops. And uh, at this point had about 17 churches all the way from Anchorage, Alaska, down to Atlanta. And we would set a bishop in each church and appoint clergy and deacons. And we're off and running with this kind of primitive shape of the liturgy which we had. We had communion every Sunday. So you were formally organized at this we point? We were. And, and did we, you have an office somewhere? I mean, it's Not fun. really. And we really resisted another denomination. Uh-huh. But by 1979, we realized that if we're going to remain intact, you've got to have right. a structure. So we called it the Evangelical Orthodox Church. The day we formed it, we said this church is established today to one day be received in the larger church. In other words, our, our, we knew then that this was not forever. This is for a while. Oh, okay. So anyway, we kept on moving through history, and we discovered there was not just the Great Council of Nicaea, but there were seven ecumenical or church-wide councils that, uh, in which various issues of Christology and uh, orthopraxy were dealt with, and we bought into all seven of these. I mean, the, you know, these are the seven that the Reformers themselves bought into. This was the first millennium of Christendom. And these councils went from 325 to 787. And parenthetically, the toughest one for us was the seventh. 
because that's the one that brought back icons into the church. Yes. And we were pretty iconoclastic in our evangelical background. And so this was another bit of crow to eat for us. Well, that was one issue that I wanted to raise was what were the things that really were, I mean, obviously you mentioned the fact that the bishop prick was, was mm-hmm. kind of an issue for you. Icons were an issue. Were there any others that were really well, of course, tough all, to deal with for almost, you? Almost everyone struggles with Mary. Right. Because if you're anti-Catholic, which much of modern evangelicalism tends to be, not all of it, you never do business with Mary. And I can remember Billy Graham during the years of his public preaching, and I'm an admirer of his, saying over and over again, you know, we don't do, give our just due to Mary. And I'd say, <laughs> amen, but nobody really knew what the just due was. And the, the church historically, I'm talking way, way back, calls her, in the words of St. Elizabeth, the mother of God. Right. St. Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord. The Greek word she uses there is off the Hebrew word Adonai, which means God. And Elizabeth confessed the one she bore is God in the flesh. And that's what that phrase, it doesn't mean mother of the Trinity. The Trinity has no mother. Right. But the mother of the eternal son of God who became human in her womb. Yeah, that's a very difficult concept for, for mm-hmm. most people to get their arms around, for and, sure. And the reason the church held on to this is because a couple centuries later, you had a patriarch named Nestorius who was ready to call her the mother of Jesus but couldn't call her mother of God. And the whole issue is, Bill, if God was not in her womb, we might as well get off the air right now and go home because there's no salvation. Right. And that's why the church has insisted. And once we were clear theologically on that, we couldn't wait to call her mother of God. She bore the Savior of our souls. So that was a tough thing. You know, and then the whole idea of if you visit an Orthodox church during the Sunday morning service, which we experienced wonderfully this morning at St. George here in Phoenix, there's the use of incense. That bugged me. <laughs> you know, it's one of those who needs it kind of thing. Right. And knowing the scriptures I did, I knew Israel used it, and I knew we'd have it forever in the book of Revelation. In fact, that used to bother me about Revelation. You know, why do we have to have incense in heaven? And incense in the Psalms, in fact, our evening psalm, it's significant of the prayers of the saints yes. rising up to God. That's right. Let my prayer arise to you as incense. And incense is also a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church amongst the people. That was something I had to work through in, in the scripture. And in the, the book of, of Malachi, chapter 1, there's a prophecy concerning incense. It says, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, plural, says the Lord of hosts. You can also translate that word Gentiles. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. And the incense there is predicted to be used in the worship of the Gentiles. And it was used in the church all the way up through and beyond the Reformation. It was the grandkids of the Reformers that dumped it because it looked too much like Rome. Yeah. And incense is a tremendous help to us in worship. Don't take my word for it. Visit, <laughs> visit an Orthodox church uh, and experience it. Yeah, it, it, it pulls our whole bodies and all of our oh, senses man, into the worship. All the senses, exactly. So those were areas that we struggled with. And now, you know, to, to think back over 20 years and say, be people again that didn't love Mary or that went helter-skelter on Sunday morning as opposed to liturgically, who had no once-for-all sacrifice to represent to the Father. It's 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 almost impossible to think of going back. So 
I'm glad for the years I had as an evangelical because that's where I came to Christ. As director of the missions and outreach in North America, try to give us a sense of what you think the Orthodox Church, what kind of impact it's having Mm -hmm. on American Christianity. Okay. Maybe a word or two on uh, how you feel American Christians coming into the Orthodox Church are affecting the church as well. Well, when we first became Orthodox back in 1987, I would have really sincere lay people say, evangelism? Father, that's Protestant. And uh, the fact is, it isn't Protestant. But, but in many sectors, the Orthodox Church had forgotten the gift of evangelism. You know, you mentioned what did, what did converts bring in. I think this is something that we were able to reignite in the Orthodox Church. I never get that anymore, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh, but what they had in mind was, you know, the, the sleazy TV preacher and the emotionalism and the 20-minute plea for an offering and all this kind of thing. And, of course, quick conversions. Yeah, I mean, I hope most of the listeners here would reject that kind of evangelism, too. Anyway, I've, I've had the joy of, in many ways, spearheading this effort. When I took the job, or was given the job by our Metropolitan Philip, he said, I want you to go out and bring the gospel to America, and I want you to build churches. Let me ask, just regress a little bit for us. What, how did you actually join the Orthodox Church. Well, what, what happened there? It's the same way anyone would join. We came with this network of 17 churches. Our synod voted, once said Metropolitan Philip offered to be our Father in Christ. And that's kind of a long story. It's contained, it in, contained in, the, uh, in the book. Becoming yeah, and that Orthodox. would be if people want to know more to read the book, uh, Becoming Orthodox. It was Those were exciting years. Once he offered to make us part of the Archdiocese, we met among ourselves and, and said we want to, yes, mm-hmm. and we told him that. I see. And so we spent a year learning the final things we needed to learn to make that day possible. And then in 1987, we were received parish by parish into the Antiochian Archdiocese. And interestingly enough, you know, the, the church I wish I could have joined in the Book of Acts is the church we did join because <laughs> it never has ceased to exist. Right. And today our patriarch lives in Damascus. Are you ready for this? On the street called Straight. It's still there. I've been there. It is straight. And is it ever old? <laughs> wow. So that's how we came in. And you come in through the rite of uh, chrismation, which is the anointing of oil, that we might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be made part of the visible body of Christ. So you were charged almost uh, right away right with, away. This, with this and I said to him, ministry of evangelism. I said to him, you know, I know how to start Protestant churches. I'm not dead sure I know how to start an Orthodox church. He said, well, you find out and report back to me. That's literal. (laughs) And so I spent the first year or two doing that. And thank God, since we brought those initial 17 churches in, we're almost at the 100 church mark. Now, of other parishes that have joined us or other places that we have begun a mission. So it's been a really fine time. Yeah, and so how would you characterize the movement, as it were, or or the work of missions and evangelism in in America? Well, we've done essentially two things. Number one, we have targeted places that we want to begin a mission. For example, and this is my old Campus Crusade background talking, I want an Orthodox church on the perimeter of every major college university in America. We've just started a mission at the University of Iowa in uh, Iowa City up and running. It's it's one block from the gate of the campus. Uh-huh. And uh, we've done that at Purdue. We've done it at Illinois, though there was a church there already, but there's another. We started a parish right near the campus. This has been true uh, on many of the major campuses, and I'm, I'm not through yet. 
These are places we targeted and planted. Mm -hmm. And then you've got other situations where you've got an, a Protestant pastor, most always a Protestant, who has discovered the Orthodox Church, would like to be Orthodox, and wants to bring his people in with him. And these have ranged all the way from very high church Anglican all the way to pretty well foot-stomping charismatic. Right. It's, it's been thrilling to see how this diverse group of Christians has come together on the common ground of the Orthodox faith and begun again now as an Orthodox mission. Have you ever run into the charge of trying to solicit Christians away from their churches and, and sheep stealing, I guess we could yeah. call it that? You know, we've never had to do it. And, you know, I, to this day, I don't believe my job would be to walk into First Baptist Church and say, you know what, You're, you guys are really incomplete, and I've got the answer for you. That's just that Christians don't behave that way. Right. But what is happening is so many pastors are, are for whatever reason, uh, and I, I've got one explanation, are reading the early church fathers and are discovering that Christianity is way more than what they're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a historicity and a continuity to it. We don't want a history of 100 or 150 years. We want a 2,000-year history, warts and all. And most charismatics and evangelicals feel that they don't really make it in worship. And that's a huge drawing card to orthodoxy. They don't really make it. In other words, personally, when Marilyn and I would drive home from church in the 60s, we'd say, well, did we make it this morning? Did, did we connect with the throne of God? That's uh -huh. what that means. I see. And most often the answer, yeah, the sermon was okay, but I didn't connect very well, and I didn't either. And uh, you got to be orthodox for a while, I guess, <laughs> to experience the answer to that dilemma. But it just doesn't depend. You know, if the priest has a bad day at the pulpit, that's okay. Because worship is so much more than the sermon. And I'm for good sermons. Right. But uh, not all of us bat a thousand every day of the week, do we? <laughs> anyway, it's the, the whole worship issue has been a big thing. The continuity with history has been big. The whole idea of community, the communion of the saints. In other words, being friends with believers not just here on earth, but having friends in high places. We mm -hmm. knew they were there. We just didn't want to be their friends. And that's changed. So those are some areas that have really blank places have been filled up for us. If you could say anything to encourage or besides all that you have said already, because we certainly do appreciate everything that you've said, but if you could say any one thing to an audience of people, uh, may or may not be, but, you know, are listening today, may be searching for something a little more than they want to make it mm -hmm. in their worship. They want to make it in their personal practice of, of mm -hmm. their faith. What would that be? I'd say two things. Number one, if you're listening today and you're not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. And I would encourage you to come to an Orthodox church here in town. You can get on the website or they're in the yellow pages under Eastern Orthodox and talk with the priest about your own salvation, about your own need for Christ and your need to uh, commit yourself to him in the context of his church. And if you're listening today as a Christian, my encouragement to you would be this. If you're in a modern worship setting, orthodoxy will really look off the charts to you on your first visit. Uh -huh. It just, you know, it blew my socks off the first time. And my encouragement to you, everything you see, hear, touch, taste, and smell in this church is revealed in the Old and New Testament. Okay. This is the Bible church, Bill. And it's all there. And once we as Bible people realized 
that this is the faith of the scriptures. This is the faith of, of the historic church. We were there, but it took some time. The Orthodox Study Bible. Tell us a little bit about how that got started, and uh, if you got a little time, you can yeah. tell us. After we came in to the church in 1987, I had so many priests pull me aside and say, Father, is there anything you guys can do to help us teach our people the Bible? Many of the churches back then did not have Bible studies, and so people were going off to other churches for Bible studies and then coming back conflicted because you know that church taught one thing and the historic church taught another. And uh, so we put our heads together and said, what if we got a Bible that had study notes that reflects the, the teaching of the Orthodox Church? And let's take some of these areas, like the struggle that people have with Mary, for example. Right. Let's go into Luke 1 and build some notes that really help them understand who she is. Because if we lose who she is, then we're going to lose who her son is. So that's what we did, and Thomas Nelson has published it. They're the largest... Bible publisher in the world. So they've published the New Testament and Psalms 10 years ago, and today it is the number one best-selling book in all of Orthodoxy. And uh, we were fearful that it wouldn't sell because back then Orthodox people weren't Bible readers. All that's changed. So it's sold, sold uh, well over a third of a million copies. And now we're just completing the Old Testament, and that'll be out, God willing, in about a year, and Thomas Nelson will publish that as well. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, we're, we've been really blessed to have you today. Uh, it's coming down to the wire here. Mm -hmm. Any particular... Well, you know, what comes to mind is, is so often the apostles of Christ, when they were questioned by other people, their answer was, come and see. You know, when St. Fortini, who was the woman at the well, was right. converted, she went into town and said, come and see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this not be the Christ? And my encouragement to you would be to pay us a visit. And there are numerous uh, Orthodox churches here in town. Give us a month of Sundays. You won't get it the first time, unless you're really insightful in a way I'm not. But take a month of Sundays and uh, visit an Orthodox parish in your area and uh, just see the uh, beauty of the worship, the historic unwillingness to change and bend to the fads of the day. Right. The faith you read about in the Bible is the faith you will be presented with at an Orthodox church. All right, and with that, we thank Father Peter Gilquist for joining us today. You have been listening to Our Life in Christ. My name is Bill Gould. I've been your host today. God bless all of you, and have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday at 4 o'clock. Thank you for listening to Our Life in Christ. This teaching ministry is sponsored by St. George and Saints Peter and Paul Orthodox Churches of Phoenix. If you'd like more information about the Orthodox Christian Church or have questions for Stephen and Bill, please visit our website at www.ourlifeinchrist.com. Thank you for listening, and may the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all in the coming week.